1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: My name's Lucas Hare, and this is the Honest Actors Podcast. It's like, it's
0: like uh, melted butter, that's what that is. Hi, my name's Jonathan Harden, and you're listening to the Honest Actors Podcast. This is another brand new interview as part of Series 4, the series I never really truly intended to put out, but somehow has managed to exist. The other interviews are already on there. I think there's about four or five today, plus four or five lockdown specials with past guests. Today I'm chatting to someone who I've chatted to about the podcast a lot in the past and who has a podcast of his own in which he talks about all things Bob Dylan. He's feeling a little bit nervous today, I hear, uh, because he's not used to being on the other side of this. So today's guest is Lucas Hare, and I am about to click admit on Zoom. Oh my goodness, his head... Your headshot just popped up there, Lucas Hair. before this. It's very Hello. glamorous.
2: How are you doing? <laughs> I came in halfway, so you were saying something about me. I, was like I just walked into a room, and I wanted to know what you were saying.
0: I was saying that just before you popped up, not that you don't look glamorous and beautiful, your headshot popped up, Oh, fuck you, and it looked very glamorous. And may I say, <laughs> a little bit uh, bad boy.
2: Oh well, I you know I've tried my best.
0: And you know, well let's let I mean, let, let us judge and see whether you're <laughs> mis-selling yourself or not.
2: Well, there's like two days of stubble on there or something, and I look like I've I've got one or two demons. I've tried very hard to do that.
0: Yeah, you're looking. I mean, I can't. uh, I almost want to hang up so I can see it again, but I'll enjoy it. (laughs) I'll enjoy it post chat. And maybe if I can somehow screen grab it, I'll share it along with the episode just so the listeners can also enjoy uh, what can only be described as your version of Blue Steel. (laughs) You're looking very well. And also, may I say, (laughs) as backgrounds go for the listener, there is a well stocked bookcase, a couple of antique chairs. Uh, a box one can only assume of family mementos, some VHS videos or books in the background and some kind of turned a, An upright piano.
2: God, you've made it all sound incredibly interesting and artistic. It's just stuff, most yeah. of which needs to be thrown away or dumped there, and that piano doesn't work. But, but let's not dwell on details.
0: Listen, I've just been reminded of something. Are you direct descendant of Shakespeare? Because I've just noticed there's a very... There is an oak beam and I remember having a conversation with you in the past where your family are, you're like, you're, you're, I mean, you're basically somewhere really far back. You're related to Danny Dyer. Is that not true?
2: <laughs> I am, I, I've done a lot of genealogies, genealogy or genealogy? I never know. I've done a lot of that in yeah. the last few years. And if you take it far enough back, then there are some various people that you think, oh, I'm. I'm tenuously connected to that person, not to Danny Dyer, not to Shakespeare, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure well, everyone, if they get
0: I think, far back enough. I think genealogy, genealogy proved quite some time ago that if we all go back far enough, we're all related to Danny Dyer. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm open to contradiction on that, uh, but only uh, as a, as a kind of offer of some kind of grace, I know I'm right. Um, so I've asked you this before. I'm not going to ask you again. How are you keeping? How's lockdown been treating you and the
2: Hare family? I think okay, he said cautiously. I mean, I don't know anybody who's been stricken with the virus. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm living in that weird place where it just seems a bit strange and nothing particularly grim. Um, I'm quite busy. I'm quite happy. Um, I like being at home. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but you start to feel slightly guilty because you realize just how much it suits some personalities. And it's not that I'm a misanthrope or I'm a hermit, but, <laughs> you know. However, I, I, however, I'm quite happy to just talk to people on the phone and, you know, video and not have to leave <laughs> leave the house sometimes. It's a bit weird. I wasn't quite ready that. must ready be something of
0: a revelation for you because I certainly wouldn't have put you down in that category.
2: No, I think I'm just lazy. I think I, you know, I like people and I like seeing people, but I live just outside London, so I've always got to go into London and then come back and the trains are annoying and I don't drink, so there's that. And it's, you know, I'm really enjoying being at home, working a bit, um, recording my own podcast, doing this with you, doing things like that, doing a bit of tidying, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. It sounds really bland to say that, but I'm, I'm not. Do you think, do you think it will have changed you? Like I would have
0: imagined you are a dressing room door always open kind of guy. Do you think this may <laughs> have turned you into a dressing room door closed? Leave out on the, on the uh, in-out boards, leave yourself as out, uh, lock the dressing room door from the inside and pretend you're not there. Is that, is that what
2: lockdown has done to you? Is that, is that well, the I suggestion? I hope, not. I hope not. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm that person, but I am just very lazy about, about going out. I read something that your podcast alumnus John Joe O'Neill quoted on Twitter yesterday. So that if you don't have podcast alumnus, I quite like that that we have we have alumni. We do, do they'll get you know funny hats. Um, He said that he was quoting someone else that if you don't experience anxiety during this lockdown, you're either an enlightened being or a psychopath. Yep. Um, I don't think I'm either. Right. So say the psychopath. I, well, I, I suppose must be. I, I'm not as anxious about stuff as as I should be, given the fact that the the trade we work in is burning to the ground as we speak. And, you know, there is quite possibly going to be very little salvage from it when we come do, back.
0: Do you know the really sad thing about 2020 is you say something like the trade we work, into is, work in is burning to the ground and I feel like, oh God, I haven't checked Twitter today. What's, ha- <laughs> what's happened? Is, is this merely a metaphor? Or is the, are the theatres literally burning to the ground?
2: It's merely metaphor, you find. It's uh, you know, for now. It's, that. it's a metaphor for, for now. Oh, yeah.
0: um, well, as long as we can get a trade deal with Australia, we'll have reasonably priced Tim Tams in the future. So you oh, know, there's know, way to that. I mean, oh God, oh God. I mean, I just don't know where you begin if you're a satirist anymore. I just don't know how, how the thick of it, for example, would exist in 2020 because it would all just seem too real.
2: No, they would. I mean, this is very topical, and I know that's probably to be frowned on for recording a podcast, but just today, Dominic Raab was talking about taking the knee, being something that's from Game of Thrones. Now, if you wrote that, you might be accused of going a little bit far, mightn't you? (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you've just, yeah. I don't know where to begin with topical stuff, which is why I generally try not to bother. I've been censoring the news Um, which is a good and a bad thing. I feel I have an elevated sense of the danger of coronavirus because I'm in Northern Ireland and actually there are less cases, but because I refuse to listen to local news because it just makes me furious. I feel like I'm living in the northeast of England where apparently the R number is relatively high. And so um, that's, the rest of our family are all very relaxed about this. All very relaxed. All want to, you know, uh, do, do, go back to some kind of normality. And I think we have an elevated sense, perhaps, perhaps of the danger of it. Although to me, it just seems totally logical to wait and see for a couple of weeks, what locked, what the reducing restrictions means in terms of the transmission of the virus that takes two weeks to really show itself. So, uh, so we've isolated ourselves from our families for, for a little bit longer while they've all, I think been moving towards seeing each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's important to console yourself with the fact that nobody knows anything. And that can either be the most enlightening or the most frightening thing you're likely to hear. Um, And as I say, as as you say, rather, I think a bit of caution is very, very wise. Lots of people have said to me in the last few months, What can we do now? What have they said we can do now? What's allowed? And my answer is always, Well, I'll I'll go with the common sense in my own head based on little reading around the truth and science rather than what this yeah horrible horrible government is telling us to
0: do that is the bit that really gets to me is like what point did we start waiting for them to go and now and now now the pubs can open in two weeks and you think oh brilliant that's that's good isn't it and and then you go and look at the world health organization and think hmm not sure that's really that's another one of those test 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 no thanks we're good for tests Mm. um I hear also the app won't be ready till Christmas, but it's no big deal. I mean, come on, we could, <sighs> This is a different podcast. Um, thank you very much for agreeing to do the podcast we're recording at the moment. Which, uh, although listeners may be confused, is not in fact the politics podcast. It is the 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 honest actors podcast. Um, tell us this, Lucas, Hare, if you wouldn't mind. How did you get into acting?
2: I was thinking about this, and every time I think about it, I realize it started earlier than I'd always thought. I always thought I started when I was about 12, um, and then I realised I remembered I did a school play when I was 10. And then I remember the year before that, I tried to get involved, and they stuck me backstage. And then I remembered... The year before that, I won an Olivier. (laughs) Yes, exactly. For my one-man show. Invented the theatre. I think I was about seven or eight, and it was my first... Got it was my first term at boarding school. Yes, I was seven. And they were doing, I think, Tom Sawyer. And at some point, somebody used a knife. And I'd already opened. I'd already seen it. But I went to the teacher in charge the next day and I said, um, I've got a really good knife that you could use. And which is, I don't know, I've misremembered this because i would quite clearly seen it already and they didn't want to accept new props at that stage. But... They said, yes, please bring it in. that would be exciting. And I did. Uh, bollocks. It can't have been. It can't have opened. It must have been a rehearsal or something. Anyway, I lent them my knife. And that was, it was a plastic, you know, toy. And I just wanted to be part of it. And then a few years later, again, I said to someone in charge of the play, is there anything I can do? And I'd left it far too late. And they said, well, you can just be backstage and, and watch the lighting and sound, guys, and m- maybe learn a bit. But thank you for your interest. kind of thing. Uh, and then the next year they gave it's been me the same lead, ever so. since. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and then I, I played the, the lead part in a play the next year, and no, I was I was twelve. So by the time I was fourteen, I thought this would be fun if I could do this for a, for a living.
0: So, listen, boarding school is a, is a whole other world to me. It's not something mm-hmm. I I've, I don't think I I've ever had a discussion with any of my friends. About going to boarding school, so I don't even know if many of my friends have. I mm. knew you had, I think. But do you think that experience is any different in terms of like if you're the if you're a performing kid, if you're a kid who likes to make other people laugh? Was that was that you, or were you a shy retiring guy who got a chance once in on a blue moon to go on stage and be somebody else?
2: In all honesty, I think I was both. I think I was very shy and very inward, but occasionally I would find myself impersonating one of the teachers and somebody Mm -hmm. would say, oh, you should do that. And that was the only time I felt confident. Um, And that goes right through to all of my teens when nobody feels confident about anything. And I was doing at least a player term, if not two, because it was somewhere where I felt confident and, and surrounded by by teenage boys and girls, I didn't really. Um, and those things, interested. I,
0: those things, I guess, have more currency in a boarding context. Whenever you're not yeah. going home, and so you have to find your place within the group, I guess. Not
2: just yeah. during, not just during class art, and also, you know, it was a big fuck off private boarding school, so it had great facilities. So if you expressed interest in doing a play, there was no. I didn't study GCSE drama or or A level drama. That wasn't available to me. If you wanted to do a play, you'd go up to the teacher in charge of the theatre and say, "Can I book the theatre to do this play? When's it free?" And they'd say, "Yeah, sure."
1: That's um, amazing.
2: And, and then you'd get in there, and the, the 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 seating would be movable, so you could have the stage wherever you wanted. Um, I mean, that was ludicrously kind of <laughs> privileged. So.
0: This is really interesting to me because I was re-listening as it happens to John Joe O'Neill because somebody tweeted about how much they'd enjoyed it. And usually if somebody tweets something like that, it makes me go, I've never listened to that episode since I edited it together. And so you have a very strange sense because something in your brain can't remember which bits are in and which bits are out, Mm. apart from the really standout moments. And so I listened back to it and laughed a lot at the fact that I seemed like a school child and was very excited to be in a dressing room with John Joe. Um yeah. and but one of the things that was interesting was we talked about the that one of the things that facilitated his becoming an actor was the fact there were zero expectations on him to be anything else. Ooh. Now I imagine if you go to in your words a uh, fuck off, was it a fuck off?
2: Boarding school, private that's school. The, that's, that's the specific. That's what it says on the sign it. anyway, yeah, at the bottom yeah, of the very yeah. long
0: lane. I guess the opposite is true to you. And I guess there was a level of expectation that was the school has a theater. Yes. But we don't mm. study theater because probably, I mean, I'm making a level of assumption here. There's no academic value in it um yeah. but but it's an extracurricular thing go ahead enjoy it we have a theater with some movable seats but i no under no circumstances imagine that this is something that you should pursue professionally is that a fair assumption or if if i'm painting to yeah. to simplify the picture what is that what is the kind of more rounded one
2: no that is that is a fair assumption i mean i was studying english history and arts a level and the closer you get to adulthood and your teacher's expectations that you're going to be making some kind of decisions about this sort of thing fairly soon you know that 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 point gets closer and closer and i remember going to my art teacher and saying actually uh, you know i know that I, i quite enjoy art and stuff but i think i'm going to be an actor and he looked incredibly disappointed and that was another artistic calling giving way to to acting so i the academic thing um i don't know i mean english I enjoyed English A-level so much because we were doing things like Shakespeare, frankly, and that seemed very connected and holistic and, and part of it all. Um, but most people who go to those kinds of schools go into banking or they go into the government or, you know, so there's that level of expectation. So, uh, And I didn't really want to be part of that at all. So if that's the
0: case then, did you have the support of your family? Like, at what point... What age were you when you went to that art teacher? Uh 17, 18, probably. So so I imagine then either close to that, either before or after, you also had a, a similar conversation with your family. Yeah. And how, how did that go? I mean, is that a bit of a, uh, to a lesser degree, obviously, is that a bit of a coming out to say, listen, you've spent all this money, I went to this great <laughs> school, and and what I would really like to do is be one of <laughs> 60,000 unemployed actors in the UK.
2: Funny. Now that you put it like that, that makes that makes sense of their reactions. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I probably mom's didn't lesser, phrase it like that. I mean, I no, certainly I wouldn't. I didn't. But how, how very um, articulate of you to put it like that? It's absolutely true. Um, my dad, my parents got divorced when I was about ten, and my dad paid the school fees for as long as he could, and he'd also gone to a big fuck off English boarding private school, um, but had not really gone into anything particularly notable but when I told him he was very well I would now say realistic at the time I, I thought he was probably being a bit negative in telling me that I should have something to fall back on etc etc whereas my mum who was the youngest of four children and always always had to deal with the fact that she was the youngest and female and therefore her opinion never accounted for anything said to me I will support you in whatever you do and it wasn't until I actually started becoming an actor that I realized that she meant that it's not just something parents say. Um, And they're both no longer alive. And I very much wish I could kind of show my mum some of the things that I've done since. She'd be, she'd be chuffed a bit, Um, you know.
0: And was there any history of it in your family? Was there a kind of a, I mean, not even to a professional level, was there a a footlightsy kind of vibe to any of your uncles or aunts or, you know, that kind of?
2: No, I've got a cousin um, called Rebecca who went to Lambda, which is where I went to, and she was about 10 years ahead of me. And so when I was getting interested in acting and drama school, I would ask her uh, and she would give me little bits of advice. um,
0: Did she ever advise you not, not to do it? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Did it, did it leave a mark? Did you even consider her advice at that point?
2: No, because, you know, if you're that age, you, you know everything, don't you? And you think that you're going to be different and you think that you're going to be famous or successful or both, and which is great. You know, why shouldn't young people think that? But now, from the vantage point of my late 40s, I can see how ridiculous that was. And w- what
0: did you expect? of a career at that point, then if, if your cousin's saying, listen, you know, this and that, here's some advice, but yeah, it's I mean, it's not, not really a great path and it's difficult. And <laughs> if I was to do it all over again, I might consider this, or have you thought about teaching or any of those things that people do? What were your expectations in contrary to that?
2: Well, it's what I would say to my children now, and that's to quote the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson song. I know there's an answer, but I have to find it by myself there's absolutely no point in telling people that because they will discover that you are right, but they have to do it for themselves.
0: Look at you quoting the beach boys. That's so, <laughs> that's so on brand for anybody that doesn't know you. That's very on brand for the man that has a Bob Dylan podcast. Very, Thank very you. on brand.
2: Yeah. Uh, my life is punctuated by banal pop lyrics, but I, I do believe that. I do believe that, you know, your experience of something is is very often not the only meaningful thing, but someone can tell you something that is the truth. And until you actually go through it yourself, you're just not going to take it on board. So, so
0: what did you expect as you embarked upon a career, as you embarked upon training, what did you expect would happen when you came out of that training at Lambda?
2: I don't know. I, I must've, I think my mistake was not to be, there must've been some kind of complacency there and not enough ambition because to this day, I don't think I'm ambitious enough. Um, And yet I think, I just, it never occurred to me that I would leave drama school and then really have to fight for this. I thought, in my stupid naivety, I've gone to one of the best drama schools in the country. Um, I'm leaving now. Um, I'm young. There are lots of possibilities. And I didn't fall into it. I thought, I mean, they probably do now, but at that time they didn't really prepare you for the fact that the day after or the the week after your graduation, you're going to be sitting there looking at the phone going, oh, um, I'm waiting for you to ring, am I? Shit.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. It's interesting.
0: Um, Paul Higgins and I had a chat a few weeks ago. I know you've heard it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that came up in that discussion, there's always something in these chats that's brand new, as much as the questions are pretty much formulaic there's always something that's brand new. And one of the things that occurred to me during the interview with Paul it was brand new was that people give up a lot to go to drama school personally, that they separate themselves from their friends quite often if they're not from London and if they're traveling out, even if that commute's only an hour, that they're away from family and friends and that when they come out and they try and find themselves somewhere to live in London, they're skint, they're unemployed and they don't have a support network. So if you, you know, I don't know where in particular, whether you were in London at the time or not. Yeah. Um, But it does seem that one of the things that people are very ill prepared for is that coming out into the world of drama school. And although you'll be told, as you say, a hundred times during drama school, you know, it's not easy guys. And you know, you're going to be unemployed when you come out of here. That little part of your mind that says, yeah, but not me. I'm going to be the guy in the class. It's going to be okay. Everyone else might be unemployed, but I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, how did you find that first, that first little period, or, or was it cut short by a job?
2: Well, I went up for an audition for something, and this was definitely within a, two months or even a month of leaving Lambda. And the guy who saw me said, you're not right for this, but I've got something else I'm thinking of. And it was not a good job. It was a fine first job, but it was a real come down. Um, so I did that, and then I did a play the following year, which again was a bit of a come down in terms of my expectations. Um, I was, you know, I was doing I had a, a pretty good part, but then I discovered the small print that I was also doing light stage management duties, which I had not realised I was meant to be doing. Then I found out I was being paid less, you know, as a result, and so that was a bit of a come down. And then I had about eleven months of unemployment, and. Those three experiences together were very, very sobering. And when I came out the other side, um, it's funny, no, Colin Cook, who was head of, head of acting at Lambda, said, it's not a three-year training, it's a seven-year training, you, it's just as, as, which is to say you carry on learning for another, at least another four years after you leave. And it's something I think about all the time. Um, like driving, I suppose. You may pass your test but you're still learning for those next few years how to drive at night, drive on motorways, drive in the rain, you know, all sorts of things that you hadn't been prepared for. And so that learning experience went on for a long time after I left drama school. And yeah, you discover a few things that that were a little less rose-tinted than maybe you'd assumed.
0: Okay, before we go down that uh, dark winding path, (laughs) Uh, I think it's important to do some other Honest Actors podcasts, podcasts, podcast business. Too much Adam Buxton. Anyway, here we are. Yeah. Um. Before we dark, go into dark. dark, it? dark no, before. <laughs> you're too keen for this dark and winding path. I, mean, I, want,
2: I want dark content. You know, I need, I, 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 I know. I need a good meaty part. This is tough. You, need, being you do need
0: some dark content. We're going, we're goes. going to go dark. Don't worry. But before we do that. Uh, there's the question of if you were to be defined by a single job or two mm-hmm. along the way, the kind of work you like to do, the kind of work you'd like to be known for, or something that just stands out as being important to you, what jobs might appear at the top of that list? And that's my usual kind of gently phrased get out clause for anybody who feels offended yeah. when they go, fuck him, we didn't mention that show we did.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are two shows that I would say were very important to me and I, can th- I think I can honestly say that neither of them had anything to do with the work I was doing in them. So I'm not proud of my work in them, but I, they were formative. Um, the first is, I guess, near the end of that seven-year period that we're talking about, late 98, late I was in a production of Twelfth Night at the Sheffield Crucible, directed by Michael Grandage. Um, and I had two utterly inconsequential parts, but I learned, sorry Lambda, I learned how to do Shakespeare on that job, and it's never left me. Um, and I looked around me, and I looked at the way that production was being done, and I thought this is how you fucking do it. You know, it's, I remember Michael Grandage saying in rehearsal, he said, we've got something here, he said, it's, it's light on its feet. And I thought, that's an interesting phrase. And that's exactly what it was. It never, you know, crowbarred you over the head. It was incredibly deft. But it was very enjoyable. And they have this thing in Sheffield that they, I think they still do. They certainly did in 98 called a Pound Preview, where they were just, all tickets would be a quid. And he said to us the night before, he said, no pressure, but this is what the show will, will die or, or live on, is word on the street, depending on what's happened to this Pound Preview. Because anyone cut. And if people on the streets of Sheffield like it, you're okay. And they did because it was utterly accessible and it was never patronizing and it was never difficult and it was just great fun. And there was some, I mean, to this day, I look at people like, I mean, Malcolm Sinclair played Malvolio. Um,
0: I'm glad it was a comedy. I thought you were going to say, you know, played Hamlet there and I was going to say, oh, that's, <laughs> that, would, that would be interesting. Be it would be interesting. A light on the street think, Hamlet.
2: Yeah, but God, it was good. It was, and I can say that because I was barely in it. Um, Eunice Stubbs was in it, uh, Hermione Gulliford. It was just a wonderful, wonderful production. And I, like I say, my opinion of Shakespeare and how it should be performed has not deviated from what I learned on that job over 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. So you stop learning. Off-
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I thought this is how you do it. This is, this is absolutely how you do it. Um, the other one I would say would have to be by default because I've done 500 performances of it is the curious incident of the dog in the night time i did a i did the national the first english and irish national tour and i did an, and then another six months or so in the west end a couple of years later um and that was a very very important experience because he was a play that in 2014 15 had been done at the national two years previous maybe yeah two years previously and had been in the west end and it just made you think well surely everyone's seen this this is this is done and dusted right no um not at all and we were sat down at the beginning by rufus norris and he said this is what the national theater is meant to be doing which is being national we're taking this stuff out around the country and we're giving it to people that won't have had a chance to see it yet and you realize when you're playing to two thousand people a night in liverpool or Aberdeen and the response in these places and what it means to people. It was just a fantastic lesson in how important theater is. People, kids would come who'd never been to the theater before. Um, People who identified with the the protagonist um, who were on the autistic spectrum would would write letters and say, I'm bringing my family to see this next week so that they can understand me better. You know, it just really, really humbled you. Um, That was special. It's pretty
0: two pretty good choices. It's almost like you thought about that in advance. Like it's like you, you oh, prepared. It's, it's There's somebody me. off screen, I can just see holding up cards, Bob Dylan style.
2: I know, I know, I know. Well, it's almost like you've been doing this podcast for five years and you ask the same questions every time. I mean, I, I, so hold honestly, on, don't, don't interrupt like... me.
0: I was looking at my questions. One second. Yeah. <laughs> What's the one project you're most proud of? based on that one. Yeah, Do yeah. you enjoy auditions? Do you agonise over them afterwards?
2: Which one do you want? Do I enjoy auditions? <sighs> um, I thought about this, and sometimes is the answer. I, I I've thought about this a lot, and they are awful sometimes. But if they're worth it, if if you genuinely feel like you've had a chance to show a little bit of yourself, and then build the relationship that comes afterwards from that first brick, then I think that was that was wonderful. I, I yeah. once. I, buy that. I I did my worst audition was, and I only mentioned this because I just was recently reminded of it because another actor went through exactly the same thing um, for the same production. And it was a fairly high profile. Oh, honestly, it was a fairly high profile production at a very high profile place with a very high profile director.
0: Ah. And so
2: I'd prepared a couple of scenes, a couple of parts and I got there. And we did that chatting thing with the director, you know, which you always think is just breaking the ice. But, you know, really, you're as nervous about that as you are about anything. And we did that. And that seems to be going fine. And then he said, um, anyway, um, you probably will have heard, I don't uh, I don't get actors to read as a rule. So uh, thanks for coming in. And I was utterly befuddled and crestfallen because I I'd, I'd prepared for this, you know. And all we'd done was 10 minutes of talking about mutual friends and people that we knew and all productions we'd seen. I thought, you've not even given me the chance. And I I just tried to forget about it because ultimately there was nothing I could have done about it until I, (laughs) I worked with an actor last year who told that exact same story. And we both felt vindicated that it wasn't our fault. And we've been carrying this around for about five, six years. And we just, in that moment, realized that what must have happened is the production must have been cast but there was another day of auditions that they had to get through. And they just thought they'd do it as quickly as they could. It was painful. But when I heard this other but actor yeah, tell me, yeah. I thought, oh, thank fuck. It wasn't it wasn't me.
0: There are directors who don't get you. Some very well-known directors who don't get people to act. They observe them. Yeah,
2: but they don't ask you to prepare and then tell you that they're not going to use I didn't,
0: it. I mean, yeah, you you said you'd prepared. You didn't say you were asked. But I thought maybe maybe he was... <laughs>
2: Well, no, yeah, I was instructed to, to prepare a couple of scenes. Right. Um, oh, so that's, there, that is hard. No, it was horrible. It was just horrible. You know? That's hard. But there is a kind of Zen-like thing with, with auditions. As, as John mm-hmm. Joe was saying about Brian Cranston and George Clooney, they have this, this great advice about, you know, you're gambling with house money. It's a learning experience. You walk out with nothing. It's the same as what you, as what you walked in with, etc. etc. et cetera. But actually, if there's nothing you could have done, that's quite freeing. Because you can say to yourself, "Well, there's nothing I could have changed to make that better for myself," mm. but that's what a person who's completely rejected and depressed would say. <laughs> I
0: don't so, know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Like, I mean, I—it's really interesting. These questions are now like five years old. as You pointed out they have been. I mean, this file is called Podcast Questions Series Three. So I did kind of go through the mid and think, well, oh, what ones... And I should probably go back to the start and maybe reinstate a few. But they kind of evolve with me. So oddly, the question about auditions now, I think, well, it depends on the audition because so- I like them, not when I get them, but I like them when the person who's conducting them is nice and courteous and interested. Mm. And I dislike them when they're not. And it's like auditions themselves... It's not the audition per se, it's the interaction. And the interaction is entirely subject to the other, the human at the other side of it. And of course, me as well, if I'm having a bad day or I haven't prepared as much as I think I should, then I might go in with a chip on my shoulder. That's happened. Um, But it's just, you know, it's interesting that you say that about the questions. And actually, as you're saying that, I'm like, it it does just depend, doesn't it? You can have an absolute stinker. And at the same time, you can come out of an audition thinking as I have done, phone my agent and said, I didn't get it, but I think, I think it did okay. Like I, I'm pleased because mm. someone who I wanted to impress, I feel has went, he's all right. Mm. And that's enough.
2: And that's, you no, know, that's important because if you can take that from the audition then you're not hanging everything on the did I, didn't I get the job. You're using the audition for purposes, you know, for which you can learn, you can grow, you can, you can adapt. And I think if you can, phone or email your agent or whatever afterwards and say almost certainly didn't get it but you know what? i did the best i possibly could and i felt it went fine but i i don't think i'm gonna get it then that's that's for me that's a positive because you've learned something
0: yeah and as i always used to say back in the day i haven't said it in a long time i've just been reminded you're auditioning for more auditions you're not yeah. auditioning for that part you're auditioning for that cast director that director who will not just do one thing in three years' time, four years' time, ten years' time, you've got to hope that they'll go, do you know who'd be great for that? That yeah. guy who wasn't quite right ten years ago. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read them all like this just because you uh, said I don't <laughs> have all my questions. Like do I you
2: know the flaws when
0: an edition has gone well? No, I'm not going to ask
2: that one. It's a terrible <laughs> Well, I, I thought I did and, until, uh, yeah, I went to one and uh, the director looked so unbelievably moved and sincere and I didn't get it. and I thought. Okay, well see this I is want difficult so, that.
0: this is difficult because having just directed again for the first time in years on stage mm. and having gone through auditions where some people came in who just weren't right, but you know you've got 20 minutes put aside and you know they prepared, so you're gonna direct them in the scenes yeah. because that's what you do, and in some cases people came in who I didn't think were amazing. And you're still going. Well, they came here. They prepared. They deserve to get me to direct them through the scenes. And you can't really in an audition go. You're not getting it no more than you can in the rehearsal room. So you have to say yeah. positive things like, "Oh, that's that's actually yeah. That's you not know, feel that's much better. It feels much stronger working like that." And and you can see how then actually what you're doing is just giving people hope. Yeah. So it's a really difficult line. I think on the other side of it, if you're sensitive to actors. It's actually really hard to not give people hope because what you do want to do yeah. is go, what you do want to do is just be, is be bluntly honest and say, listen, this isn't working. I don't think you're going to get this. Um, you know, I pro- what I should have said to some people, and this is interesting as well, is you need new headshots. Yeah. Because you look nothing like them or, mm. oh, your headshot gives an, enti- an impression of an entirely different person. Mm. And I brought you in because I wanted that person and you're not that person. So it's a classic, it is a real yeah. classic misdemeanor, yep. like a real, you know, your, your headshots are the, the actor you want to be rather than the actor you are. And
2: well, there's a great mistake, I think, that a lot of people think they can go through life being positive, And that is in some way itself a good thing. But like you say, if it offers someone false hope, that's incredibly cruel and unrealistic. Yeah. Um, and I think it's easier socially and in auditions for people to pretend to be positive about something than anything i mean you know it's, it's a useful skill i went to a film premiere once with a, a, a friend who worked on the film and we watched it and it was fucking awful and he turned to me and he said right now comes the difficult bit now we're gonna to go to the party and talk about opening weekends and how everyone's gonna love it and all that and it was brilliant he did it um and i just have sort of nodded at him but that's, it's, it's a really important skill. It's really, yeah. but it's just shockingly fake and horrible. And in an audition situation to give, as you say, give an actor the hope that they think they did it right, just so that you stay positive, whatever that means, is is cruel. I don't know, man.
0: I don't know. Like, I've, mm, no? so what do you, yeah, I don't know. I always say as well, if someone's good, you have to say they're good. And then the flip side is if someone's really brilliant, I will say you're really, that was really brilliant. And then of mm. course they leave going and got that, but it doesn't mean you were brilliant for the part. It just means mm. you, you're brilliant. Like, you know, it's so hard because I think people really? on the other side, if they're, if they're nice people feel exactly the same levels of anxiety over how they're presenting themselves, but also about how they're managing your experience, because I think people are mostly sensitive to actors' needs, within certainly theatre. Like, theater's mm. the best, then film, <laughs> <laughs> then TV, and then at the very bottom it's like commercials where they couldn't give a flying fuck if you're about oh. to have a breakdown. And
2: that's, that, that can be after they've employed you. I mean, it's, you, know, you know what I mean?
0: We're having oh. we're running an hour behind. Fuck off now. Yeah. Um, anyway, do you have then friends that you would consider to be rivals? People who you see at auditions who you dread to see because you think oh God, they'll get it. Or, you know, have you been able to separate your own skill set from those of the people that you consider to be similar to you? Uh,
2: I think I don't separate my own skill set from other people. I I don't think I'm, you know, special. There are lots of, actors who are right for things and lots of actors who aren't I, I I don't really feel this is going to sound like what I said earlier on about John Joe's enlightened beings um, I don't really feel envy I don't think anymore and going back to what I was saying earlier maybe I should maybe I should be more ambitious more driven but I don't you know I don't really I the mean, once in a while I've gone on, up for a self-tape that is just ludicrously out of my league, but I thought, well, it's nice to do. And then, of course, because it's qu- quite high profile, you get to watch the film a couple of years later and see the person they actually gave part to. And if it's someone much more famous, I don't feel jealous of them. I don't. I don't. I just think, well, that's the way it works. They obviously decided they wanted someone you know known in that part.
0: Ah, but um, you see, in a way, the fame thing is is a bit. Like, yeah, that's a, I think that's a given, right? So if you watch the film and they've yeah, went with, yeah. and they've went with Cameron Diaz, you think, well, that was never going to be me, right? They've changed, yeah, yeah. changed the character, right? And she's more famous. Some would say, arguably easier on the eye than you. Although I think your headshot is absolutely uh, smoking,
2: Luke. My brother took that shot. I better give him a plug. His name's
0: Sam. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, Uh, Sam a very good musician as well.
2: Hey, oh, you are kind. You're um, for that.
0: Uh, So, I think that's a red herring because I guess it's more about like you go to the audition, you don't get it, and then one of your peers gets it, and you see them in it.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Because um, that can, that can go one of two ways. Either it can be really difficult, or you can go as I I think I said last week. Thank God it was one of us, and not one of them. Thank yeah. God. It, thank God it was one of one of the underlings.
2: That's not really happened. I mean, I, and I certainly would try and resist any any feelings of envy. Um, I just don't think it's, uh, it's just one of those emotions, which is a bit of a, a bit of a cul-de-sac. Um, that sounds impossibly kind of superior and naive okay. at the same time, but I, I just, I think I've managed to escape envy, I think.
0: Okay. So then let's assume that you get the job and that rules envy out of the picture entirely. Um, the famous, uh, an agent once told me, do you know what, uh, a friend of mine, <laughs> one of my very good friends, I really hope he listens to this, he's not an actor, and I've got two good friends from school, and one of them has been listening to the podcast from the start, and quite likes it, right, and is all, he's, he's, you know, the two of them are both guys who used to work in a video store, right, that gives you the kind of sense of, they're really mm-hmm. into films, and they're interested in actors, and they're the kind of people who would be interested in, in a, an interview like this with an actor they do or don't know, that's that's right up their street. So one of them had been listening to this show for years, and the other one had just been kind of silent in those conversations on WhatsApp and not said much. But because I'm an egotistical, egotistical maniac, I thought perhaps he was just shy, he didn't want to tell me how much he loved it. But it turns out he hadn't listened to a single fucking podcast. Cue Paul Higgins went out the other week, and for some reason he tuned in Paul Higgins. Mm. And he outed himself by saying to me, Oh, I really like that Paul Higgins episode, mate. That bit where you said, "That bit where you said," an agent once told me. Uh, you I thought that. Fucker, I, yeah. I thought I thought that was brilliant, mm. and I said, "Hmm." So an agent once told me Patrick Duncan is his name. I'll do the voice. Why not, Johnny? And an, an actor's only ever truly happy when they get the job, and then five minutes later, the doubt kicks in. And the reason why he sounds slightly English and slightly Northern Irish is because he is Northern Irish and he went to public school and went to Cambridge. But do you recognise yourself in that?
2: Completely. Yeah. I so I, I, I can see myself now. I can see myself now walking down roads out of shifts at <laughs> pissy jobs, calling my wife and saying, I've got this job or 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 tentatively saying, Should I accept this job? Um and I know in my voice is a kind of presumption that says this is going to make everything better. This will clear all my debts. This means I am working. Therefore I am happy. End of story. And that is that lasts such a brief amount of time because then of course you realize that it's going to end just as surely as it's going to start. And well, I think it was one of your things a few years ago when you were asking people to, come up with very good little pearls of wisdom. And the one that really stuck with me was um, learn to live like a pauper, especially when you're working.
0: From Mildonay. Hey?
2: Fucking superb. Yep, I mean, that, yep. That's never left me because what you've got to do when you get that job, instead of, you know, having the downward slope of then realizing that it's going to end and you're going to be, you know, hurtled back into horrible job and crushing debt is just treat it as another bit of unemployment but with but one you're working in i suppose
1: mm-hmm.
2: if you stop treating it like a, like a like a fix then maybe your expectations won't be so the great thing about
0: that that was Bramwell, a friend of mine had said that Who again i should probably get on the show he's brilliant but Bramwell had said that and it just made sense to me because it's a way of managing the peak so what you don't have as a peak that is i'm working aren't i great and mm. a peak that is I'm going out and spending money and going for dinner and buying things yeah. and all the rest of it. Not necessarily that you're flush with cash, but that you have a bit more disposable income and you're going out and spending it. And in actual fact, if you allow the job to be its own peak, yeah. and there's and there are no surround surrounding kind of associated peaks of going out and getting, you know, absolutely hammered or all that stuff that people do whenever they're working, then when you're not working, you might be able to afford to go and do the things you need to do to lift you out of that post-work, mental lull, doldrums, Mm. depression. Um, And it is brilliant. I am incapable of however of actually doing it because when I'm working, I just want to celebrate the fact that I'm working. And so I always think about that thing. Funny enough, I've always thought about that as well. Why can't I live like a pauper when I'm working? Because I would never try to live like a pauper, pauper all the time. I just I'm because too... you
2: feel you've deserved it. That's why you've, you've yeah. had these, these these months in the wilderness, and then someone gives you the thing that you've been praying for or or hoping for, and it arrives. And already, just by 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 using those words, you're treating it as some kind of transformative experience where rules don't apply. I can yeah. I can eat out. I'll be in London. I can do this and it's nonsensical. You've just set yourself up for, for a fall. You know, yeah.
0: <laughs> by the by the pyramid that's just you know uh champion yeah. for all my friends
2: agents sometimes do it to make, i mean not my my wonderful current agent but i've had agents in the past that said you know it's a job in town you'll be able to do tv and radio and and voiceovers and stuff while you're in town that's never happened but you kind of get yourself into this this mentality where suddenly you're like um you're, you're like Toast of London. You know, you've got a voiceover in the morning and then you've got a thing in the afternoon and you're then, you know, eating at your club and just having a wonderful time. It's ludicrous. There's a lesson in that Toast of London thing. I was watching just Channel Hopping last night and I heard Matt Berry doing a voiceover, um, which of course he did lots of voiceovers before Toast of London. But since Toast of London, he's obviously been asked to do voiceovers a bit As like Toast. that. Yeah. Money supermark. That was the one, that was yeah. the one. And I thought you've gone beyond parody. I mean, fair play, you've done a fantastic job there. You've set up something satirical, that then people wanted to invest in. That's a hell of a hell of a thing to do. Um
0: Do you get nervous? So coming on coming off that phone call and and mm. then suffering from self-doubt and then getting into the job and then getting to the point where I've got to put this in front of an audience. Do you or have you ever suffered from any kind of stage fright?
2: Kind of. Um I didn't do any theater for nine years once. And then I did a year long tour and uh, I was pretty nervous going on stage that, that, that night. Um, But I was also drinking. And I think as most people on most actors on tour are, and, and I'm not going to normalize it. It's just, that's what fucking happens. And it's so, so harmful. But since I stopped drinking a couple of years ago, the nerves have, well, they haven't left me, but they've, but the the anxiety has gone down by about 80%. Do
0: you know what's really good for anxiety? A big gin and tonic.
2: Now, I'm not even going to laugh at that because it's jokes like that. <laughs> You're smiling like a mischievous little fucker. You uh, um, no, it is interesting. I, you know, um.
0: People would say that, right? So anxiety would be, take the edge off anxiety with a drink. Of course, under normal circumstances in 2020, you can't really take a couple of gin and tonics before you go on stage, but there are people who will do it. There are Ooh. people who will have a little sneaky swig of something before they go on stage. Um, why, what, what's your kind of experience of that then in terms of the difference between when you were drinking versus when you're not? What do you think's different about your mental state because well, of think, that change?
2: I think I'm a, 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 you know, I think I've changed quite a lot since then. I'm not sure what people around me would say, but I um, I stopped drinking in January 2018 um, because I'd just done two theatre jobs on the trot and I reckon I drank after every single show of both of them. Uh, which again, you know, within theatre circles might not sound that strange, but that's not good for you. Um, And I finished the second job and I was incredibly fatigued at home. I was trying to get back to a normal life and I just wanted to go to sleep all the time. And I rang the doctor and they said, well, let's maybe take your blood test and and we'll see what happens. And so often, you know, you have those blood tests and you, you ring the surgery and you know, for your test results on a Friday or whatever. And they always say, no further action to be taken. And that's all you ever get. You don't get any more information. And I rang for this appointment and was waiting for the receptionist to say, no further action to be taken. And she said, yes, the doctor would like to ring you. Is that all right? A recall. You got a recall. <laughs> yeah. And a recall or a death sentence. I either, you know, one or the other. I thought, fucking hell. Shit. Shit. Am I going am to, am I unhealthy now? And, I ran, yeah, I'm, and, sure, it and this, I'm sure
0: if you're like me, you go to the worst possible, worst case scenario, totally. right? Oh, yeah. totally. My and the weight is killer.
2: Her age. Yeah. No, my mum died when she was 47 and I was 46 at the time. And I was thinking, fuck, is this is this it? Is this, is this my time? Wow. I rang, the, I rang the doctor and he said, well, your liver's not great. That's how he said it. And I thought, okay. He said, "Right." I, I said, "Well, I'll stop drinking." He said, "Well, no, you don't need to stop. You just you need to take it easy for a bit, you know." And I said, "No,
0: I'm going to." Oh, well, how, how many units a week are are, are you taking,
2: Mister Hare? Well, this is the thing. I mean, what's a unit, I said, Doctor? I know, but I said, "Look, I've just done two. I've done two theatre jobs back to back, and then it was Christmas. Of course, my my liver is full of whiskey." You can say I,
0: I have a small glass of wine when I come off stage at the end of the so first just scene.
2: Wind down then the I go show. back on
0: for the third scene. I have yeah, another yeah. small glass of wine and possibly
2: a chaser. Yeah, but I mean, we laugh, but there was, I remember, never forget, a casting director um, who I've got a lot of time for said this on Twitter a few years ago. She said, she went to the doctor and the doctor said, how many units of alcohol do you have per week? And she looked at him and said, I work in theatre. And that's, you know, incredibly truthful and incredibly funny. There is this. this That's
0: a a dark and winding. We've just found ourselves on the dark and winding road, Lucas. (laughs) Oh, good.
2: Oh, good. And so anyway, uh, you know, I was, despite my trying to normalize the fact that I had a whiskey after every show for several months, and then Christmas, and then was wondering why my liver wasn't in great shape, I decided I'd stop, um, at least for a month or so until I could have Mm -hmm. um, a scan and see if my liver had repaired itself. And within days, I happened to be reading something about antidepressants, and at the time they were you know, they were talking about do antidepressants work? Um, do people rely on them? Um, are they a good thing? Yada yada yada. And I thought, antidepressants. I have my entire life. People have told me that alcohol is a depressant, but not until this very second has it occurred to me that sobriety is an antidepressant, and that's what I'm on now, and that's why I feel better. Oh fuck! And from that moment, I thought, well, I'm not going back to this. This is why. Why the fuck would I go back if I've now realised? That that's the way I stop 80% of my anxiety. And I, I went further. I thought, fuck, have I been depressed for 20 years? Did, it, did I just think I had this sort of slightly dry, dark, twisted view on life? But I was actually depressed. Um, and it, for me, I, I don't think alcohol is necessarily the cause of that, but it is petrol on a fire in my experience. And it just, I, I think it's important within. It was important for me to say that this is my experience. This is not the answer, but it's my answer. And I think within the context of actors, um, many of whom drink a lot and many of whom suffer from anxiety about where their next job is coming from, it might be something worth flagging. Um, yeah. That's why I don't get as nervous as I used to. That said, I do need a little bit of adrenaline before I go on. Otherwise, that's just awful. As I'm sure you agree. You, um, you want to have a little bit of... A butterfly. So just run around the
0: foyer in the nip, or what do you do?
2: Yeah, I, don't I don't know. I Normally it works. Normally the, the, the sound of the audience or whatever will be enough to kind of give yeah. you that little bit of a buzz. Yeah. But I'm not terrified anymore, which is a good thing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, what happens, I did, what happens if there's not very many audience? What happens if theater audiences are down yeah. to like a six because of social distancing and, and and you turn up the show relay full blast and all you hear is.
2: Oh, <coughs> fuck. <coughs> yeah.
0: Well, the then you get, did, then you then
2: you get nervous, right? Yeah, the last play I did was in um, the vaults um, underneath the <laughs> Station, and the audience are closer to you than some of the actors. That's not an exaggeration. And we all went out at the beginning, and there was a sagging bit in the middle of the run when oh, I think I think I've forgotten the figures now because they're too disturbing. But I think we did we did weekend shows, and I think in the space of for I think all two shows on Saturday and one show on a Sunday. I think we played to a hundred people in total once and it was awful, but they're lit. They're close. You can see, you can see they're asleep. Sometimes you can really see them. Yeah. Especially in the madness. Yeah. And you thought, fuck, I, I can't afford to be anxious about this. I can't afford to have the scene that I've prepared and I'm now doing derailed by the fact that someone's asleep in front of me yeah um, so I can't yeah so there are There no there is a little bit of nerve, nerves some nerves are going
0: really on um, okay so uh, do you believe in big breaks have you had yours have you ever thought you were on the brink of one or even in
2: the midst of one um, I don't think well, they've never existed for me. And I, someone said to me just last week, "What you need, Luke, is a big break, don't you?" And my answer is always, "Yeah," and then another one, and another one after that. Because I, I've never. Some people have, and you know that's great. I ser- I've never experienced that moment in my career where momentum takes over.
0: Have you ever I've thought always, it might? Have you ever thought, "Well, this yeah, is the moment. Surely
2: momentum will follow." There was a moment. And it, again, it was just after I stopped drinking and that can't be an accident where I got a new agent and I did several TV jobs and I was in the West End and I booked for two days of filming as well. Um, and everything was happening at once. And, I, and I, it, was, it was wonderful. I, I, I thought, I've got to remember this because this is not going to happen again. But I was running out of stage door um, into a waiting black Mercedes to be driven down to a hotel for a day of filming and then driven back for the half and then again the next day. And that felt like momentum. That felt like I was busy. But I also knew that I should pinch myself and not get used to it. Mm. So I don't think, no, I, I think it, big breaks, if they do exist, then, then I'd love to have one. But I think, to me, that one of the greatest shocks about becoming an actor is that there wasn't, when you finish working, you don't go back to the same rung on the ladder that you were when you were last unemployed. You just go back to the bottom again, most of the time. Um, you might be a couple of rungs up after after a few years, but that was tough. That sort of up down snakes and ladders existence. Snakes and, in and sense, snakes. Yeah, in, exactly. And in that sense, you need a you need more than one big break. That's for sure.
0: What's the longest you've gone without work? You mentioned eleven months earlier um, without, and you mentioned nine years without doing theatre.
2: Yeah, those were well, those are the two big ones. The eleven months was a shock because I was only a year or so out of drama school. The nine years of theatre was sort of my own doing in that uh, I went to do a play in the late nineties in Hull, a Hull truck. And um, my daughter was very young at the time. And that was the time when I, just after that 12th night, actually about a year later, that was the time when I realized just how destructive to a young child's life, that kind of uh, lifestyle was. So I said to my agent, look, could we maybe just, take it easy on the theatre in faraway cities just for a bit, um, just, to, just until she's a bit older. Um, and as a parent, that was the best thing I could have done. As, as an actor, it was the worst thing I could have done because then nothing really happened for a long, long time. But it meant I, you know, I had time. There, was, there were a couple of jobs in there, a couple of filming jobs, which are still entertaining to talk about to this day. But basically, I was around to bring up my son when he was born. Um, and, you know, I, I went to university and, uh, did a degree and contemplated that maybe this wasn't the best thing in the world to are doing. Um, and that was a long time. And then, and then after then, when that nine years of theater without theater came to an end and I started doing it again, then I was pretty busy. Um, not always in great jobs, but always usefully, well, interesting jobs anyway.
0: Has being unemployed gotten easier with time in terms of how it affects your mood or um, yeah. sp- thinking specifically emotionally and mentally rather than economically?
2: It must have because, yeah, it must have because I finished this play at the vaults last November and then it was pretty quiet for the rest of the winter. And then I remember on the, like the 2nd of March, auditions started coming in and I thought, thank fuck, it's spring, new beginning. You know, And by the end of March, of course, we were in lockdown and that was that. Um. And I'm perversely okay in my head at the moment. So it must have got easier. But I think, again, something which they didn't teach at drama school then, and I'm sure they do now, is preparing people for the fact that they should really have to seek another job as well. And that's not a cop-out. And it's not a, well, it might be a compromise, but it's also a necessity. Um, If you've got something else in your life other than just House. I, I think I think the drama
0: schools are starting to do this thing and I think it's really positive change but also it doesn't quite get the where you're talking about which is drama schools do this thing about from my, my chats that I've had about making your own work being important but of course mm. we all know that making your own work doesn't necessarily mean making your own money and that quite often it can mean the opposite you can end up not being able to work your part time job for a period if you're really flat out with rehearsals or developing something or yeah. doing shows in a above a pub or in a small theater for very little that actually it's great if making your own work leads to you being artists in residence and at you know a nice big venue but actually it's another kind of false promise isn't it make you got to make your own work it's make your own work to be spotted, I guess would be the ultimate, would be the kind of more realistic. So somebody else mm-hmm. will hire you, but it doesn't really get to what you're saying, which is that accepting that as part of this career is the, ex- is, is the acceptance that it's not a career in a traditional way. It's not yeah. a career. It's not a career where, you know, if you find yourself stacking shelves and Sainsbury's that, um, that that's somehow a
2: failure. Yeah, it's not a failure. It's just you've got to find something to mentally and financially keep things ticking over. Otherwise, mental thing's really important.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, think. Yeah, people underestimate the importance of that as well, don't they?
2: Yeah, it's got to be something you find. If if not creative, then at least ethically satisfying. Um, I mean, I, I, or or really,
0: really fucking brilliantly paid would also do.
2: Yeah, all that. Yeah, I am mean, I remember, yeah. you know, posting leaflets through through letterboxes as I was coming to the end of uh, a stint at the National Theatre, and I thought, this is fucking ridiculous. But um, I used to
0: love that contradiction. <laughs> when that contradiction played out to its best, I used to love it. When we yeah. were on the National, um, you know, going and doing, like, labouring stuff. Yeah. And with a big beard and a shaved head. Thought, oh, what's the story of the beard? I like, go, oh, I'm going to show on the National. And they'd be like, yeah, whatever, dickhead. And you're like, no, I am yeah. a, I'm an actor. And they're like, yeah, whatever, dickhead. And I yeah. used to love that kind of, that you're doing what you do, what you love doing, but it, it, it includes doing a little bit of the things that you don't.
2: And doesn't that, that say an awful lot about people's perceptions that if you're working at the National Theatre, you can't possibly have the need to do anything else. It's like if you say to someone you're on, you're going on a tour and they say, oh, do all the hotels get boring, do they? I'm <laughs> like, you think you stay in hotels? Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> It's digs and I've got to arrange it weeks in advance and it's horrible. Yeah. You know, but okay, you think it's hotels. That's fine.
0: I'm not going to disavow you that, you know, (laughs) absolutely.
2: Um, So have you acquired any
0: specific ways, not drinking aside, of coping with rejection and unemployment and the economic uncertainties?
2: I don't know. I mean, I... (laughs) God, that's difficult. I think rejection, if you can turn it around and somehow understand the bigger picture, that it's not just about you. Maybe there is someone else who's better for the part. You know, that's tough. But of course, we think we're always the best people for the role, but we might not be. Um it's difficult to hang on to those or not hang on to them, I should say. Um, so I don't know if I've dealt with that, but I, but I do think the problem is the compromise that I've made is that in order to cope with that better, I have probably become less ambitious. It's that old, is it Pete Postlethwaite who said, you know, the, the key thing to acting is don't want it.
0: Yeah. Which actually I don't, because <sighs> I've got to that point as well where I've, I don't, I'm not sure I've stopped caring, but I certainly tell myself that
1: Yeah. regularly. Yeah.
0: And, and that's actually, impossible. but there was a part of me that used to email my agent and say, "Listen, is there anybody I should be contacting? Should I, is there anybody you're having difficulty getting me in with that I could write to? And then coming up, you think I should need to write to, but I need to be really good." And I got to the point where he was just saying, "No, you're fine," because everybody knows who you are. You get to that point in your career where if they seen you, they like you, or they don't, and they're either going to see you or not see you again. It's like yeah. it, it gets that simple, right? Yeah. Um. But uninterestingly, big Matthew Flynn. Mm-hmm. said something in like episode three, uh, which has come back to me, which is, you know, he f- he he phones like people he's worked with in the past to remind him he exists. And or at least he did when he did the interview and he would get involved in, you know, nights with young directors because he's always thinking like yeah, those young directors are going to become established directors at some point and I want to be the guy. Mm-hmm. So he was still very much in that place of finding, co- connecting, building relationships and I haven't done that for years. I've quite happily been lazy with the excuse that I don't really care but in actual fact I think I do care as much but not doing those things is my coping mechanism because it mm-hmm. removes the ability to be rejected or reduces it reduces the opportunity for rejection if I feel like I'm in control. The
2: most depressing moment I had with an agent was was during I think that those nine years of not very much um, and I rang my agent just to sort of have that conversation, which is the subtext of which is, I want a job, and please, can you get me one? And, of course, it's, who can I be calling? Who can I be writing to? Just seeing what's going on, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, had, had the conversation. It was it was toe-curly in the extreme. Put the phone down. Uh, within, and this might have even been before emails, but, but within a couple of hours, he had an audition for me. And I thought, oh, fuck you just remembered i exist haven't you oh, oh shit what was it for you know i was nothing and i rang you and you went oh i'd better get him something so he thinks i'm still here yeah that i mean there are people who four. would say that that is one of the
0: most important things you can do is phone as phone those guys and say listen i exist yeah but my point would be like if you need to do that shouldn't be with the agent in
2: the first place. I agree 100%. The agent I'm with at the moment, I would never, ever need to do that because I know she's working her ass off all the time.
0: Yeah, there Um, needs to be an element of trust that you trust that they're doing it anyway. I just think you never want to be that actor where they have have caller ID installed because of you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. No, but God, it's funny. I
0: just, there's nothing worse. The worst thing you can get from an agent is a sense of pity. I've had that in the past and that's the thing that always hurts the most because if they pity you and they know the reality they know who yeah. they're submitting you to. Like I always think pity is that I'll take anything. I'll take anger. I'll take frustration. But whenever yeah. they're like, are you okay? You know, I just, oh no, don't, 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 no, don't, don't go there. Yeah, um, What's the most difficult thing about being an actor, Luke?
2: Um, I think, I think it's a really difficult thing to demand of, of your nearest and dearest, actually. Um, I've never been able to live off this career um i've never been able to say to my wife and my children you know you're okay because i'm 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 bringing in the money and that makes me feel that has made me feel pretty shitty over the years um because in if you if your job is not able to do that then it can be quite debilitating don't you think Um
0: yeah, definitely. I mean Yeah, a hundred percent. But I guess the question would be you must have been able to give other things then. True. Yeah, Uh, that's true. And I remember speaking to um who was it in series one? Michael. Anyway, somebody who'd had kids and had said the same thing that they basically took ten years and looked after the kids and where their mm. kids court jester, I think was the term. Um, yeah. And that actually, that is it, knowing how to play is some some serious bread on the table in, a, in, a, in another way, you know?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is true. At mm. least you're present. Completely. And that, and that, if you are parenting, that uh, those years are over so quickly. So, so quickly. I have a friend of mine who's an actor who has just had his first child you know and he was he was saying to me he can't wait to you can name me it's okay you can (laughs) (laughs) they're 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 both actors and etc and they just had their first first child and not you and he was saying you know we're we're juggling this is pre pre pre-covid 19 but you know we're juggling who whose turn it is to work and things like that and i just he was sort of hinting at the fact that he can't wait till he's old enough that that they can get back to normal slightly and, and and do jobs and things like that and I just said, look, don't, don't wish it away because this stuff is over in a heartbeat. And in terms of quality time that you get with your kids, that is over so quickly. It's just shocking. You know, I mean, my daughter's 25 and my son's about to be 18. That means I won't have any children anymore. They'll both be adults. And that, that seems to be, have been over very, very quickly. And I was talking to my daughter about this the other day and she said,
0: How, 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 how quick? Like very quickly?
2: Well, it's astonishing. Like really quickly? Really quickly? Yeah. yeah. I mean, chronologically, of course, it's it's a set amount oh. of years, but it feels quick.
0: And the sooner I go to bed tonight, the sooner it'll be over. Is that what you're saying?
2: <laughs> Depends on the substances you're imbuing. I don't know. I mean, my daughter was saying to me the other day that, you know, I was not particularly present for a part of her childhood. And then I was, and she was, she wasn't saying it critically. She was, you know, she was saying I was so much more present, but by By that, she meant that there was a point that I wasn't. And that this career can do that. You know, it can just, it can suck the presence of you in someone else's life out. I mean, those year long tours are the tough ones. I've done a couple of them. And that is, that's a huge, huge thing to ask of the other people in your life. Um,
0: I remember that at the time. Yeah. Watching that from the outside, and you'd done a little project online with your map. kind of for your daughter, for your son
2: to follow. That's right. That's right. God. But that you were at least making the effort, I guess. Yeah, that was me trying to, trying to show him, look, look what daddy's doing. This is exciting. I'm going here and then I'm going there. And, you know, and he was, uh, he was 13 or so at the time. He was, he was quite interested. Um, Plus he, he, for a brief moment, wanted to be an actor. And so he, that was all quite entertaining, but. I was getting some good work as well. Yeah, I know, really. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but the one before that, he was seven. And I really thought, fuck, what am I doing? I mean, to bring this back to where we came in, seven the age that I went off to boarding school. And when mm. I tell people that, they go, fuck, that was young. That's, that's not right. And I'm thinking, well, it's also the age that I said to my son, I'm going on a year-long tour around the country. Um, I've been around every day for you for seven years, and I'm still your dad, but I need to work. Bye. That, that, was, that was tough.
0: So, you know, this is interesting, this need to work, right? Um, You've always struck me as someone who keeps busy and that is both within and without the industry, Um, that you don't like to be someone who sits at home not making money. So you'll go and do other jobs to bring money in when you're not working as an actor. Um, Do you find that difficult in a sense that you know I, I look sometimes whenever Bruna and I our incomes would fluctuate wildly and sometimes two or three years I would make more money and then sometimes two or three years Bruna would more make more money and it turns out at the moment we're in one of the latter kind of periods where actually I worked out a couple of years ago that I could go get a job in a bar but I, but the money I would make I'm more use at home doing the dishes keeping the fl- I'm more actual use as a Mm -hmm. PA to Bruno when she's busy, then Mm -hmm. I would be bringing in £7 an hour, right? £8 an hour working in a bar. Mm -hmm. And so I made a decision a few years ago when Bruno was getting really busy with writing that that need to work was my need. It wasn't a financial need. It was a need for Mm -hmm. me to get out of the house. And that for me, the decision was a different one, I think, than yours, which was, I just need to accept that I'm going to clean and I'm going to do the garden and I'm going to do things I'm going to do chores so that Brona has more time to write yeah um Has that something you've ever felt in terms of you know do you do those jobs purely for the financial need or do you do them because you need to feel like you're contributing
2: I think the latter and I think I've I've taught myself to become that because when I left drama school I could have done with a bit of that um and then, the, 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 I mean, the most ludicrous point was probably about fifteen years ago when I was teaching drama, and my son was very young; he's un- under five, it's been like three or four, I think. And we had to pay someone to look after him while I was teaching, and it was pretty much like for like. And my wife covered it and said, "You know, it's important that you are able to." Feel you're doing something um but that was as you say that was more about my need to not feel guilty that i was bringing something in or being active than any kind of sensible notion of economic balance because there wasn't any it was ridiculous I mean, you, as you say I would have been probably much better just staying at home and, and looking after him myself um but it seemed like the right decision at the time. And it's, with a bit of hindsight, it seems sort of futile, really. I suppose what you're saying, and I think, I think what you're saying, and I think I agree with it, is that you need to be able to say to yourself, my presence here is of value. And the hmm. skills that I'm bringing to the table or the environment are valuable, even if they're not financially you know, remunerative."
0: Have you ever considered giving up? Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: How seriously or how close have you got?
2: Just before we worked together, about a year before that, I think, I my part-time job, which was not particularly interesting, but it was in retail and it was something I could do, there was an opportunity for that to become a bit more and they said, look, we're, we think you're really good at what you do. Um, we'd like you to accept a higher position within this company. But if you do it, you can't be juggling acting as well. Mm, I think that's and, a very
0: common experience that people will, will identify with.
2: Well, I said to my agent at the time, look, nothing's happened much recently. What do you think about doing this? Just see how it goes. And we agreed. I think it was two or three months where they wouldn't actually call me. Well, they wouldn't actively put me up for anything. Um, if something came in uh, with an offer or something, then, then we'd worry about that if it happened. But I would work, you know, and that was the f- the only time I've ever done a Monday to Friday job. It started to, I started to put great stock in things like Friday night, you know, that. that I
0: understand the weekend for the first time.
2: Completely. And yeah. I didn't like it either, but I'd, I'd much rather be walking past a restaurant on a Saturday afternoon and having just done a show and be about to do another one than wish I was inside with those people having the quote unquote normal life. But doing that job was, uh, I, w- yeah, I was not happy, but it, I, I had to get out of it to realize how unhappy I was.
0: It's interesting. I used to always think this when I moved to London and I worked in a restaurant and occasionally would get offered, do you know, do you want to? become a supervisor or take mm. a step up and always turned it down there'd be other actors as well who would do the same thing we offered a friend of mine Marin Owen who's now teaches um, teaches acting and we were asked whether we would like to share the manager's job and we both turned it down and we said no they still couldn't understand why we wouldn't share a manager's job but I always said that London is full of restaurant managers and retail managers And you go into those jobs and you meet your manager and you say oh, I'm an actor and they go so am I and you do that thing of look at them and go, well, you can't be, you're the manager. And the truth is they've been in London 10 years and somehow by accident, they've become the manager of Topshop in Oxford Street mm. or by accident, they've become, you know, the manager of a massive restaurant in Soho. And, they, mm. and the reason is because they were always available and they're good at what they do and they're really, you know, intelligent and personable and People like them and they're good with, you know, a team and all, all those, all those transferable skills that actors have. But it is one of those things where I think you just, it's a decision you'd be strong and say, just say no kids, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because sorry about my dog barking in the background, by the way. Um, I don't know if that's coming through, but anyway. It is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a bit of a homely touch. Um, oh, it's just the postman. Christ. It's not that exciting, but he gets very excited. Um, yeah, because all those skills that come may not come second nature to actors, but certainly are skills that we have. If you put them in another environment, they're incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, confidence. Um, I mean, I was communication. You know, I, I worked in telephone fundraising for a while. To, you did. I did. Mean, you know, that was fucking depressing but again you I didn't got me in some, you got me and I, I, no, I, I was I'm so sorry i know but it wasn't until i got out that i realized what a poison chalice it was it was
0: i raised money for the society for the prevention of oh jesus animals something i've forgotten i for did donkeys to i raised money for donkeys and uh i had to in my first shift my first after training my first pet shift I had to raise my hand yeah. and say take my headphones off and say um i'm out like, yeah, and, yeah, and there yeah, was yeah. a big, like, what do you mean? And they brought me in the room, like, what do you mean? And I, it was because I was trying to sell something, trying to sell charity to a woman who was breastfeeding her baby. And she That's said right. the line to me, she said the line to me, listen, I'm actually in the middle, middle of breastfeeding my baby. And true to script, I said, it really is a very quick call. <laughs> and as soon as, yeah, I, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, I do not like this. This is, no, this is not I, who I am.
2: I've done that enough times to... to hear that and not laugh at it uh yeah it really
0: is a very quick call i'm breastfeeding my child i don't know if you just heard that oh yeah sorry um yeah yeah that's yeah i'm sorry i should yes absolutely you should go and do that um yeah i'm, I'm so sorry i'm so sorry
2: oh you know that itself is a skill to be able to say you know no way am i going to talk to you about this right now bye but i mean you know within that area for example you've got people like you and me who understand rejection and <laughs> you're also trying to read a script. Uh don't want to get away too many trade secrets I here, but of course you know the, the script. script. I
0: know the script you know. off my heart is there one day.
2: Yeah, you, you knew the script and and your job is to make the script come alive and make people emotionally react to it. So of course that's the same as acting. That's how so you sold course. it to me.
0: That's how you yeah. sold this is oh, the I'm so sorry. This is how but you that, sold it to me. It's just know, acting. I know, I know. Trying was. to get, you're trying to elicit an emotional <laughs> response was the phrase you used. I remember it as back. clear as day. And that was also, yeah, you got me at a low point because that was whenever I was just about was fed it. up with working, laboring. I was working in a bar at night, and at one point, I was doing all three. So I was doing labouring, bar and so that place great. and pub quizzes. No, it's not your fault, but sorry, it was. Sorry. Hi, you recently donated to our campaign on television. You gave £3. I just was phoning today to say thank you very much and just let you know a little bit more about what we're doing. Yeah. Would that be okay? Great. So um, as you know, some animals across the world are living in unconscionable conditions. It's true that in some places in South America, donkeys Harnesses are made out of barbed wire. Can you imagine how painful that must be for those poor animals? So we're actually using your money to help stop that happening.
2: Just getting my Etc- wallet out, sorry. Etc, um, et cetera, oh, et yeah. cetera. I mean, In, it, that was good. basically
0: the general thrust. People were getting UNICEF and I got protecting donkeys overseas.
2: That's what I got. Yeah, you, they would have built you up. up
0: UNICEF. Just, there was a guy beside me who on UNICEF. I was like that lucky guy. I bird. did a lot for
2: UNICEF. I mean, but you know, to, to, be, to be serious, that was a when that worked, it was a wonderful job to, to be, yeah. felt great to be raising money for UNICEF. and stuff. But, but yeah, my point was with, within that arena of that, that job, the skills that people like you and me had are going to set us on a ladder because, you know, we are good at rejection. We are good at being emotive. We are good at, um, dealing with scripts. Thanks man. Um, we're, you know, all that stuff. So sooner or later someone's going to say, do you want to be a manager? And you have to go, yeah. well, um, as much as I like this job, sometimes the reason I'm here is because I can go off and do auditions at less than 24 hours a true. It's true. And sometimes, sometimes the offer's too good. Yeah.
0: But I know so many people who've come over or come to London from other places and within three years they're managing a restaurant. But not Mm -hmm. because, not just because they've been offered, but because also the financial pressures are so huge that the Mm -hmm. extra fucking, sometimes the extra 50p or one pound an hour, which is all it usually is, is so significant if you're working 50 Mm -hmm. hours a week. 200 and whatever quite a month extra that people can't turn it down and I know what that's like you know Yeah. Um, but yeah you just have to be strong I
2: think I I wouldn't be an actor if it wasn't for the fact that I you know my wife earns okay money it's as simple as that I I would have had to chuck this in and do something else a long long time ago
0: yeah but that's why you married her Um, (laughs) if you weren't an actor
2: no it is not I can't believe you said that even the dog disagrees with that if you
0: weren't an actor what would you be
2: Oh, I'm gonna let my dog fill the pause. I'm not answering that doorbell. I'm not Paul Higgins. I haven't set up someone to pick up the the delivery in my case daughter. it goes during the recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I I would quite fancy, and this is ridiculous because. I, don't know, I was talking to my father-in-law about this the other day and he's in his seventies and he still talks about what he'd like to do one day. So I don't think that ever leaves you. I, I think I can still, I could maybe imagine myself as, as a writer or something. Mm, um,
0: journal, music
2: journalist. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I quite enjoy the um, the solitary writer's life. I'm mm. okay with that. Um, but that's just a, Say, See, please, you have yourself done as
0: this misanthrope, and I, it's not what I remember at all. I That's remember, good. I remember a man at the front of the queue to to complete a jigsaw, communal jigsaw. I, re, <laughs> I remember a man whose curtain was. was also was was always open.
2: It wasn't a le- small part I had in that play. There was a lot of backstage time, <laughs> a lot of backstage chats.
0: Um. So why haven't you given up? What's the best thing about being an actor? Why haven't
2: I given up? Um. Apart I, from- love, I love doing it. And and as long as I'm able to do it, I'm going to carry on, but I don't complacently say that I will never give up because, you know, something particularly right now, who knows what comes out at the end of this, but
0: theaters uh, are literally burning as we speak.
2: <laughs> I must remember Jonathan doesn't read the news. Jonathan doesn't read the news. Don't speak in metaphor. Yeah. Um, you know, I,
0: I hate that I don't read the news. I used to always, I just can't anymore. And I sometimes see it by accident and it makes me really cross. And I think it's that hard and then I realise it's not. And that makes me even more cross. There's a balance
2: to be struck though. There's a balance to be struck because the news is bad for your mental health. There's no doubt about that. But also shutting yourself out is, is similarly harmful. So you just have to be, you know, find a routine that works for you. You read the news in the morning, maybe once in the afternoon, not just before you go to bed. I mean, my wife and I were watching Channel Four News the other night, and my son came in. and He went, "I don't know how you watch that and then go to sleep."
0: <laughs>
2: Which is a uh, fair point. I mean, it's a fair point, and also Channel Four News is, is on quite early. That must be he thinks we go to bed really early. Um, ah, what are we talking about? News? Uh, doing something else? What was the question
0: again? I said, "What's the best thing?" Was that the question? Who cars anymore. No one's listening at this point. Well, They've we're, all we're decided. Which is riffing now? Aren't two we. middle-aged white men talking shit. We're basically for, 90%,
2: for a podcast, yeah.
0: we're 90% of podcasts out there. Um, oh,
2: fuck. It's depressing, isn't it?
0: Do you consider yourself successful? No. Would your younger self agree with that? The younger self that was going into drama school? I would yeah. he judge your achievements. My,
2: my younger self would be shocked that after a quarter of a century plus, you still haven't made it. My, my younger self was so naive. My younger self had no idea that the, Employed, unemployed, employed, unemployed, no momentum equation still exists. So how, okay. let's take
0: making it as an expression out of the picture. Okay. How do you define success?
2: It's, it's got to be that that very unoriginal answer, which I'm sure lots of your guests have said, which is not being able to have to rely on another job and be able to live off this one. Because then it's a career, Then it's a, then it's a trade. And then whatever worth you find in it uh, beyond that is fantastic, but it can't just be. It can't just be the worth that you find in a job if it doesn't actually tick the box of job, i.e. financially help you exist.
0: Okay, um, so if you could, with this wisdom that you now have, look at her after a quarter of a century of you know, living with it and all that it is, it's, it's good and it's bad. If you could go back to that arrogant, young fool that was, it sounded like crap's last table all of a sudden. If you could go back, oh, what an idiot I was then, and offer your younger self advice, have a word in his ear. What might you say to him to illuminate that dark and winding path? to make it more straight to use a
2: biblical reference well i would i would say either lower your expectations slash curb your enthusiasm or go 100% in the other direction be very very ambitious and don't take no for an answer but what you can't do is just exist somewhere in the middle um well you can because i have but I think my younger self thought it was all going to happen, but never really had the drive to make sure it happened. Okay. I don't think I was ambitious enough, you know. If, as
0: Baz Luhrmann tells us, advice is a way of taking the past, dusting it off and recycling it for more than it's worth. um, Hindsight is the thing that's brought you to that advice, right? Yes, that's true. Things that you regret. So what would that younger man with no sense of the future, in his relative ignorance, remind you of that you may, in those intervening years, have forgotten?
2: Well, I don't know. My my younger self might try and give my older self some advice, but it would be advice without the context of experience. And my older self would know that it was naive, unrealistic nonsense. I I don't know. I.
0: What, what, so, to put that question another way, do you think there's anything of that young man that you've lost that you wish you could get back?
2: No, I'm, I'm happy with who I am now than I was then. I think. No, I know I know I'm
0: just going to leave a pause there for you to doubt yourself. Bastard. <laughs> Um. Okay. Final question. Do you wor? Oh, second last, penultimate question. Do you worry more about your health, your work, or your financial security?
2: I think health now. Um. You know, I'm now older than my mum was when she died, um. Which happened to me when I was quite young. Um, I am very aware that I should eat better, exercise a bit, not drink. Things things that I do, actually. um, I'm not obsessed by my health, but I I do think it's something to keep an eye on. Um, (laughs) Work and financial security are always going to be important, but the older I get, I I, I tend to keep more of an eye on my health, I think, mental and physical, probably more mental. Particularly in the
0: context of a global pandemic.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. There is that. Um,
0: Um, Yeah. Listen, last question. Are you in anything? (laughs) And I'm going to change this for you. The moment, Mm. because that's the way that seems to be more common
2: in the English. um, I'm so so touched that you changed that with me, because I always used to say at the moment, at the moment, at the moment. Are you in anything at the moment? Um, No, I'm just in my house. Um, sorry I stole that joke <clears throat> I stole that, I've got to say where I stole it from <clears throat> there's a great podcast called The Guilty Feminist and years ago they had Phoebe Waller-Bridge on it yep. and she was talking about her hatred of social media and how bad it is for you and how it just turns us all into you know closet, not even closet, narcissists and you know bores and God knows what and at the very end of the podcast the host Deborah Francis White always used to say, "Where can people find you?" Um, and they would say, "Well, I'm on Twitter at oh, Is it Lucas Hair yeah. or whatever? I'm on Facebook. Facebook is and whatever. And Phoebe Waller Bridge spent an hour lambasting social media. And Deborah Francis White said to her, "So where can people find you?" And she just went, uh, "My house," which I thought was just perfect. So no, I'm, I'm nicking that joke. I am. I am not but also on Twitter. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just in my house waiting for, looking for the next best thing, as, as Warren Zevon said. Uh,
0: it has been a pleasure, Lucas underscore hair. I don't no, even that's the old that.
2: one. I'm uh, not on that anymore. It, is, it, that.
0: it has been a pleasure, Lucas. Um, long overdue. Thank you very much for your time and your honesty. And um, I hope... I hope it's maybe reminded you of some things that you might have forgotten about, but my sense is that you have um, been writing your autobiography because your answers were so eloquent uh, that you couldn't possibly have been thinking on your feet. There's definitely some prompt cards <laughs> being involved
2: here. There's
0: I mean, somebody standing. There's somebody I standing. I had to do some
2: preparation. I was fucking terrified. I was so nervous. The minute I said yes, I thought, oh shit. Because podcasts yeah, well, are I just really dropped you, in. you
0: see, it just really dropped you in it. Well,
2: podcasts um, are easy if you're the host, but if you're the guest, it's all about you. Then that's, quite, that's quite a pressure. But you've made it very pleasurable, and thank you. It's been, a, been an honour to, to partake.
0: It's been an honour. Um, <laughs> the honour, sir, has been all mine. That was the Honest Actors podcast with Jonathan Harden and Lucas Hare.
2: That's so perfect. I wanted to See? laugh in the middle of that. I thought, no, you use this shit. This is good.
0: No, I just, I mean, you know, hold on, where is it? it? <clears throat> next time on Honest Actors Um, so uh, just showing off all I can do there if anybody's hiring there's literally no point in showing off your range in this podcast because we are all unemployed actors after all Uh, so people are more likely to take jobs from you than give them to you is that true? I don't know Uh, so that was Lucas Hare talking about two weeks ago I obviously didn't put that out as quickly as I'd like to because of various other things that had got in the way of that so thanks again to Luke for doing it and apologies to him for the delay in getting it out I said on the Thursday night that we recorded that that it was going to go out the following day and that's two weeks ago so <laughs> things didn't quite go to plan um, thanks again for listening if you're on Twitter <laughs> you can find me there at honestactors at Jonathan Harden Please do suggest future interviewees. Please let me know how you think it's going, what your favourite bits are, any quotes that stand out, any moments that you've enjoyed, or anything you just think is total bullshit. I'm always interested to hear what you guys think. That's it for now, I guess. Until next time, uh, take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon.